Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We're excited to hear it speak to us, and we pray that you would uh, just transform our hearts through it. And so it is in your name we pray. Amen. So Romans, we've talked about, we're going through Romans, well, we're going through basically all the writings to the churches this year on Wednesday night. And so Romans is the first one we come to. It's an interesting book because it's written by the Apostle Paul, but it's not written to either a church he had pastored or a person that he knew uh, in a personal way. And so he's a little bit freer in Romans than he is in some of his other books. He doesn't have to say, hey, here's the false doctrines that you guys are wrestling with, and we're going to deal with those. He doesn't have to say, hey, here's the people who are struggling in the church, we're going to deal with those. The book of Romans is really Paul's just writing him a letter to say, hey, I've heard about your church. Uh, I would love to come and visit you guys, and I just want to write a little letter and encourage you. And so while I'm writing this letter, I thought I might just talk about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean when we use terms like grace and faith and uh, the gospel? And so the book of Romans really becomes sort of as Christians are go-to text on those questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does that look like? How should the gospel impact our life? And so one of the things we talked about really right at the beginning is in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then verse 17, he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so when we talk about the gospel, we talk about being a Christian, we can say, you know, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, that's the same as saying, do you have the power of God and have the righteousness of God present in your life? We're talking about the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It is the righteousness of God. And so we need to understand what exactly we're talking about, because we don't want to to misconstrue that. We don't want to misunderstand something as significant as the power of God and the righteousness of God. And so we've said it before. We'll probably say it again. Uh, If it helps, you can think of Romans almost like a theological city, almost like Paul is going to just march us through these different areas of what it means to be a Christian. And if you think of it like a city, it's like there's four buildings in it. The first is a courthouse, where basically Paul is going to take us through and say, hey, you know what? There's a verdict for how your life has been lived. And the verdict is you're guilty, you deserve judgment, and God has forgiven you, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by actually paying the price of your sin. That's the first five chapters of Romans. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are, in a sense, a power plant. And he's going to say, okay, now we've talked about what does it mean that you're guilty? What does it mean that God has Uh, paid the price to cover for your sins? What does it mean that you walk in things like grace and that you've been justified by faith? And, And we'll get into those a little bit tonight. And now, here's how you should live in response. Here's what should be happening because of chapters one through five. Uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to pause, just kind of do a little sidetrack because some of the things he said, there's some questions that would be raised about, well, wait a second, does this mean that the Jewish people have fallen out of favor with God? And, and does this, you know, what do we do with the promises of God towards the Jewish people? So he'll pause for a little bit there. If you think of it like a synagogue, he's going to address the question about what's the Christian response to Judaism? And then the last few chapters are like a church. He's going to say, here's how a church should be functioning. Here's how you should be functioning within the church as a, as a healthy believer in a, in a group of healthy believers serving the Lord together. So tonight, we find ourselves in chapter 5. We're going to cover chapters 5 and 6 tonight. Uh, so we're going to transition out of, if you will, the courthouse and into the power plant. And it's, um, 
it's a transition, but I think it's one that's really helpful if we can get those chapters together because they do tie together in a very important way. So chapter 5, hopefully you're there by now. If not, it's page 996 in my Bible. Um, But he starts off, he says, therefore, and there's an old thing uh, Bible teachers will say, if you see the word therefore in the scripture, you need to stop and say, what is it there for? Because when the Bible was written originally, it didn't have chapter numbers. Paul, as he's writing this letter, doesn't say, okay, you know, uh, because of our offenses, was raised because of our justification, period. Chapter 5. Paul's writing a letter, and the chapter markers were added in later on so that as a church, we could say, hey, go to Romans 5, verse 1, and we can all be at the therefore. And it makes it a lot simpler, a lot faster, but he's continuing a thought, right? Nobody jumps into their conclusion without having made a point. And so what is his point? Well, so let's go back to the first four chapters. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul makes a point that we are all guilty before God. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are unrighteous people who are sinners, and there are self-righteous people who are sinners. And everybody can fit into one of those two categories. Either you know you do the wrong thing, or you think you don't do the wrong thing, but either way, what's the conclusion? You do the wrong thing. And in chapter 3, he goes deeper into that, and then in chapter 4, he's going to address, well, what's the, what's the solution? And the solution is, we're justified by, well, chapter 3, verse 21, he says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he spends the rest of chapters 3 and 4 talking about we have righteousness but it's not righteousness that's ours. It's not anything that we've attained or we've earned or we've, uh, you know, worked our way through the levels. It's righteousness that God gives to us through faith, through believing that he's capable of, of establishing that faith or establishing that righteousness through faith. And he's going to go back to the Old Testament to make a point and say, look here, Abraham, the father of Judaism, if you read in the book of Genesis that Moses wrote thousands of years ago, it says Abraham believed God, and that was counted for righteousness. And so Paul's making a point. Look, even in the Old Testament, we see this. He's not, you know, Paul's making a a case here. Christianity is not some made-up religion that came on the scene in 30 AD. Christianity is the fulfillment of what God has been doing through all of human history. So Abraham is made righteous by God when he believed in God. God gave him a promise, and he said, I believe that. And in that moment, believing in God's ability to deliver on his promise, Abraham was made righteous. And Paul takes that thought and extrapolates it to say, now look for us, in the moment when we believe that Jesus has made a promise to us that that anyone who believes in Christ can be made righteous, if you believe that, then guess what? In the eyes of God, you're made righteous. You're receiving that righteousness of Christ. So, That's where we find ourselves. So because of all that, because of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, and we said last week justified is, you can think of it as, it's just as if I'd never sinned. So therefore, because we're all sinners, because God has given us his righteousness apart from the law, apart from doing good things, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's, I think, some of the most beautiful verses 
in the scripture. Therefore, having been justified by faith, if you've accepted Jesus Christ and you are a Christian, then what he's saying right here applies to you. You have peace with God and you stand in grace. And those are critical to life. If you don't have peace right now, if you don't have peace with God, then what do you need to do? You need to go back to chapter 1. And say, okay, wait a second. Do I understand that I'm a sinner? Do I understand that God is offering me his righteousness? Or do I have this idea that I need to work it hard enough or maybe I'm not that bad? If you don't have peace, you will not have peace unless it's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have access by faith into grace in which we stand. What is grace? We've got to define some terms because Paul throws out a lot of words at us, okay? Um, grace and mercy sometimes get thrown around like they're interchangeable. They're not really. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is the cop pulls you over, says, sir, you're going 100 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. It also happens to be a school zone that was flashing yellow, so technically you're going 100 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. You deserve a ticket. However, I'll write the ticket, but I'll pay the ticket for you. Uh, That's mercy. It's still justice, but it's you didn't get what you deserved. You did not get the ticket. Grace is the officer saying, hey, you know, this may sound funny, but I've got two VIP passes to uh, a basketball game. You can pick your team. I don't care. Uh, If you, you know, it's all expenses paid, full, you know, sweet experience, whatever. Thought you might want them. I'm working late tonight. Here you go. That's grace. That's getting something that you don't deserve. And so grace is, uh, somebody turned it into an acronym and said, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It is grace. Grace is when God gives us all the fullness and all the richness of his holiness and his righteousness and his power. And it's not a free gift. Jesus Christ paid for it. It's free for us, but it's not free. It, It costs something. It costs God the death of Jesus Christ. So it's not a free gift, but it is free for us. We can, and we don't just get it. It's not like we hope we get some of it. It's not like, uh, you know, how much I think I'm running low. No, no, no. We stand in it. We can bask in it. We can glory in it. We are, if you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God and you can stand in grace. And so that's where we're going to start tonight. He goes on verse three. And not only that, but we also... Glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And sometimes we read this and think, you know, it would have been nice if Paul would have just stopped at verse 2. But uh, he says, we glory in tribulations. He's giving us the list of all the great things that happen because we're justified by faith. What do we do? We have peace with God. We stand in grace. We glory in tribulations. And we all pause and say, wait a second, why is that a good thing? But we know that tribulations produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character, hope. Now, hope doesn't disappoint. We talked about last week, you know, when when people want to have faith in something. Your faith is only as good as the thing you put your faith in. Right? If you believe with all kinds of faith that you can jump off a building and not get hurt. It doesn't matter how much you believe it. Gravity wins every time. You, your faith is not going to override reality. And hope is the same way. Your hope is only as good as the object or the person you're hoping in. 
If your hope is in something shallow, guess what? It will disappoint. But Paul is saying here that, yes, we're glorying in the peace and in the grace of God, but we're also able in the same way to rejoice in hard times because we recognize that in spite of those hard times, God is still good. We recognize that God is still fulfilling his promise. Christianity never tells us that once you believe in Jesus Christ, everything's going to be easy. Life is still hard. What it does promise us is that God is still working. So in a sense, you know, when we're justified by faith, faith is giving us a hope of seeing the glory of God someday. We're believing that we are, that God has made us righteous and that we're going to experience eternal life. Tribulation gives us a demonstration of the fact of God's glory because we get to watch God work through it. Tribulation isn't fun. And if you talk to, you know, there's a lot of people in this church who have gone through really hard things. But if you talk to people in this church about going through those hard seasons, what you'll usually hear is something like, I wouldn't ever want to do it again, but I also wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Because tribulations aren't fun, and they aren't easy. But what do we do? We get to watch the Lord work in us. They're a demonstration, in a very real sense, of the hope that we have. And they're going to build in us character, perseverance, and hope. Right? You meet a Christian who's got a lot of character, you're probably talking to a Christian who has been through tribulation. Tribulation builds these things. And he's going to say, verse 6, for, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So what he's saying here is part of the reason we can glory in tribulation is because we're already saved. If you don't have peace with God and you haven't experienced grace, then tribulation is just a pain to suffer through. If you have that peace, you have the grace, you've been justified by faith, then tribulation is still painful, but it's now switched into, hey, here's an opportunity to watch God work. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul's making a point. He says, look, we're talking about, you know, being justified by faith, receiving the peace of God, standing in the grace of God. When did those things happen? God offered those things to you when you were enemies. Now you're his children. And so how much more should we believe that he is still working? He's still doing something, right? God loved you. God reached out to you and saved you when you were his enemy. And now you're his child and you are walking through tribulation. But you're his child. How much more so, much more, we're going to be saved by his life. You know, God did not come, Jesus did not come to earth and die on the cross and rise from the dead so that, we, so that he could save us in our eternity and offer us eternal life and then just kind of say, you know what, uh, good luck for the next 80 years. It's a tough world, kid, right? Get used to it. He didn't come to save us and then leave us to finish the race. He came to save us and empower us to give us the power of God and the righteousness of God. That's what the gospel is. That's what we say when we say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. We're talking about, I believe not only 
that God has saved my soul eternally. I believe that God is doing a work actively in me that should bear fruit in my life right now. And he's going to go on, uh, verses 12 through 17. We'll sort of read it as a chunk, but he's going to just make a point here. He's going to say, look, all the pain, all, all the suffering we endure on earth comes as a result of one man's sin. It comes as a result of the fact that Adam sinned and walked in rebellion uh, towards God. How much more then is Christ in his perfection, in his righteousness, and in his death able to bring us into life? He's just making a point. Basically, Adam brought us into death. Christ is bringing us into life. And so we'll read it. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. He's saying Adam is, is kind of a picture of Jesus in a flipped sense, right? Adam brought death. Jesus is going to, Adam in his life brought death. Jesus in his death is going to bring life. Uh, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So, Adam's life brought death. Jesus' death brought life. And he didn't just bring life. Flip over to John 10, verse 10. Well, you don't have to flip there, I guess. Uh, but in John 10, 10, Jesus speaking says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have a life and that they may have it more abundantly. And Jesus did not come just to make things okay. He didn't come to transform your life from a somewhat bad person to a somewhat less bad person, or from a mostly good person to a really good person. Jesus came to bring life into your death. You are walking in death if you're not uh, justified by faith. If you haven't received the free gift that God is offering you, if you haven't said, hey, I want to believe that Jesus Christ can take away my sins, you're walking in death. There's no life. There's no vibrancy. God came to give you that in a richer, deeper sense than you can possibly understand. He says, by one man's offense, verse 17, death reigned, and how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gifts of righteousness. Those are the marks of the gospel. We receive an abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness. Verse 18, He's going to carry the thought just a little more here. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, that's Adam, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So notice a couple things here. He's kind of finishing the thought, but notice how are the many made righteous? They're made righteous by, what's he say? Verse 19, by one man's obedience. Who was that one man? 
It wasn't you, and it wasn't me, right? Many are going to be made righteous by one man's obedience. We are not here to talk about self-help. We're not here to talk about how you can improve your life or make yourself feel better about yourself. We are here to talk about the fact that there is one man. God became man, and his obedience was sufficient to bring righteousness to every single person who will ask for it. So when we talk about being a Christian, we're not talking about works. Works has nothing to do with your salvation. Moreover, verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. And he's saying, basically, the law was given in the Old Testament so that the sin might abound, not so that people would sin more, but so that people would understand better how much we sin. When the law comes in, we realize, shoot, I'm sinning a lot. I'm sinning a lot more than I thought I did, right? When there's no speed limit, hey, you know what? I'm just kind of gauging it off what feels right to me. And if you feel like driving slower, that's fine. But, you know, who's to judge? If there's a law, there's a, there's a metric. And so when the law comes into place, when the speed limit sign is put up, all of a sudden we, I say, shoot, uh, I'm sinning. We're breaking the law. So the law came that the offense might abound. But, second half of verse 20, where sin abounded... Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The, the literal translation of that is where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Paul wants to make sure we understand something, and that is not that grace is going to do a pretty good job of covering your sins. Grace is not going to erase, erase it all or get you really close. Grace is just super abundant, right? Paul wants to make sure we're not confused here. It's not abundant. It's super abundant. Where sin abounds, grace is super abounding. If there is sin in your life and you want to repent of it and say, I want to experience God's righteousness in my life, do you know how much grace there is for that? A super ton of it, right? It's super abounding, And so he says, grace can reign. Sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Grace is reigning. God's grace should be reigning in our lives. And now he brings us to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Paul's going to address a potential question that that would arise very logically in our minds, which is, well, hey, you just said where sin abounds, grace abounds, right? Where sin abounds, grace superabounds, right? Okay. Beginning in chapter 5, you said we stand in grace, right? Right. So wouldn't it follow the reason that maybe if I want to really experience the grace of God, I should walk in sin? Because if sin abounds, grace superabounds. So if I want to have a superabundance of God's grace, wouldn't the logical thing to do then be to just, you know, party on? So he's going to answer the question. Verse 6, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's going to ask a rhetorical question, and then he'll answer it for us. Certainly not. Uh, the King James Version says, perish the thought. Right? So if you're sitting here tonight to thinking, boy, this is great. We should just like sin more, and we'll get more and more and more grace. Paul says, you take that thought out, and you murder it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
even so we should also walk in newness of life. Paul's going to go really for, well, really for the rest of this chapter and then well into chapter 7, where we'll get next week. He's going to basically draw a comparison between Jesus's earthly, physical death and resurrection and our spiritual death and resurrection. Jesus was born, Jesus was born as a man, died as a man, was resurrected. We, spiritually, are dead. We are dead in our sins. Our sins have cut us off from the real source of life, which is Jesus Christ. And so he's making a point here, and he's going to carry it through the rest of this chapter. When Jesus died on the cross, your sin nature, the death that you are walking in, that died on the cross too. Your, you know, they'll call it the old man. The old man died when Christ died. And so how should that impact our lives? Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So he's making a point here. Uh, he says, we're united together in the likeness of his death. Basically, just as Jesus died physically and rose again, and he was still recognizable, but his body was different. He could walk through walls. He could disappear and reappear at will. He was resurrected to a, to a more glorified state. In the same way, our old man was crucified with Christ, and just as Jesus resurrected, we should be resurrected. Not to be the same as we were, but to be different. We shouldn't be slaves of sin. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's saying basically here, our slavery to sin died on the cross. Our old man died. And so he's making a point here. You know, he says, should we walk in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. He's saying when we walk in sin, it's like we're trying to resurrect what Jesus put to death. It's like we're trying to bring back the old man and say, you know what? It was more fun before Jesus died. We're trying to have this idea that, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't so bad. And so he's saying, hey, no, 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 no. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, bear in mind, we're going to spend the rest of this chapter looking at this. Paul's going to be unpacking this thought for us. There's a difference between stumbling in sin and walking in sin, right? None of us are perfect. We've been saved eternally. God is perfecting us. We have the righteousness of God and the power of God. That doesn't mean we walk perfectly all the time. We still have a body that's physical. We still have sinful appetites that are calling for our attention. And we give in to them way too often. So where sin abounds, grace superabounds, right? When we stumble in sin, what do we do? We can repent and experience the full grace of God and we can stand in the grace of God right, right away. But Paul's talking here about what are you going to do with the life that you have led? 
What are you going to do with it? Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Sin wants to be a master in your life. Don't let it be. You do not have to obey your lust. And do not, verse 13, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. He's saying don't offer your body up to sin. Offer your body up to God. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. It should be in our lives this sense of, hey, God raised me to life. I want to offer that life that he raised me to, to his service. And this only happens through grace. We are not talking about, hey, if you present yourself enough, if you present yourself well enough or good enough or consistently enough, you're going to now sort of get to the next level. We're not talking about that. We are justified by what? By faith. Uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 19. By one man's obedience, we're made righteous. We're not talking about, hey, don't walk in sin so that you'll be awesome in God's eyes. We're talking about, hey, don't walk in sin because you don't have to. You don't have to. We aren't under the law anymore. We're under the grace of God. The grace of God is not license to sin. It's not, hey, I've got a free pass. It's, hey, I've been raised to life, so I don't have to walk in the things that killed me, right? We think of freedom as, I am free to do this. I am free to exercise this right. Sometimes we forget that we also have the freedom to not do this, right? We have the freedom to not do certain things. And Paul's going to say, you have the grace of God in your life. So you don't have to present yourselves as slaves to sin. You don't have to walk in sin. You can present yourselves to God as if you're alive from the dead. Why? Because he's raised you up. Because you are spiritually alive from the dead. Verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? In case we missed it the first time around. Paul is going to hit us again. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but we're under the grace of God? Certainly not. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's saying, look, and this is, he's given us a really basic thought here, but it's almost so basic that we can just waltz right past it if we're not careful. He says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves to obey. Don't you know that if you make yourself a slave, you're a slave? That's what he's saying. Right? Don't you know that if you, you know, if you make yourself a citizen, you're a citizen. If you make yourself an electrician, you're an electrician. If you make yourself a slave, you're a slave. So he's saying, don't you know? If you present yourself to sin, you are making yourself a slave of sin. You're, gonna, you're going to be a slave of something. You are not the highest being on the totem pole. Right? There are... There are spiritual beings that are bigger and stronger than you. If you present yourself a slave to sin, you will come under the dominion of sin. And, and it's, a, it's a depressing bondage, right? 
But if you present yourselves a slave of righteousness, what is there? There's life and freedom and liberty, and we stand in grace, and we have the peace of God. But verse 17, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He's saying this is a metaphor, guys. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. He's saying, look, you're going to present yourself as a slave to something or somebody. If you present yourselves as a slave of sin, you're going to be a slave of sin. Why not present yourself as a slave of righteousness? God has raised you to life. The old man is dead. It has been crucified. Why try to resurrect him? Why try to bring him back? Why say, hey, let's walk in sin that grace may abound? Why? You know, walk in sin that grace may abound. Hey, I can do this, but God still loves me. People will say that, right? That's not the point. We're not talking about whether or not God still loves you. We're talking about who's your master. And if you want to say, hey, I can walk in sin because God still loves me, what you're saying in essence is, hey, I can deny the reality of the gospel in the short term and it won't impact me in the long term. You're not that smart. You're not that strong. I'm not that strong. I can't, walk, I can't present myself as a slave to sin and say I'm going to walk as a slave to sin right up until I die and then I'll be good from there on out. It doesn't work that way. So we're saying present yourself as a slave of righteousness for holiness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard of righteousness. Look, when, you guys, when we were walking in our sin, before we were saved, who cared what the Bible said, right? That's for religious people. We were free. We didn't have this, we didn't have a, a master who was calling us to holiness. He's saying, you were free. You could do whatever you want. But, uh, verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Listen, when you were walking in sin, you were free in regards to the law. You, didn't, you were just having a heck of a time. What fruit was there? He says, the fruit was death. What comes when you pursue yourself? When you pursue your own self-lust and your self-fulfillment, what comes? Death in every form, right? Death of relationship, death of integrity, death of just fellowship with other human beings, death of brain function, and physical death. They're, they're a reality when we present ourselves to unrighteousness. But now, verse 22, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. He says, look, we've been set free. We're set free from sin. The fruit of what we used to have was death. The fruit of what we have right now is holiness and in the end, everlasting life. When we talk about being justified by faith, we are not talking about a future promise, although it is that. We are talking about an active reality that should impact every day of our lives until the fulfillment, the final touch comes when we step into eternity, right? Christianity is not about what happens when you die and are you going to heaven or hell. Christianity is about what is God doing in your life. You have fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. In the end, everlasting life is coming. I'm stoked. It's going to be great. But I want to walk in that holiness now. And he says, and he's going to remind us again, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you walk in sin, if you present yourself 
as a slave of sin, your wage is death. You're, if you're working at sin, guess what you're going to earn? Death. If you're working at righteousness, what are you going to earn? You won't earn anything. What is it? It's not the wages of God. It's not, hey, here's what you earn because you were, you were presenting yourself as righteousness. It's, hey, the gift of God is eternal life. If you walk in sin, you're going to earn death. If you walk in righteousness and holiness through grace, you receive the gift. This is not about I'm doing something to earn points. This is, Paul's point is, look, because of what God has done, the only way we can appropriately respond to that is to say, I don't want to be who I was, right? If your life looks the exact same before you become a Christian and after you become a Christian, you don't understand what being, come, being a Christian means. It's a demonstration of the fact that you don't understand what Paul's talking about when he says it's the power of God and the righteousness of God. But if those things are real, if the power of God and the righteousness of God are real, then you're before and after. You're B.C. and A.D. of I was a Christian. I am a Christian. I was not a Christian. There should be a change that happens. Not because you are now working towards something, but because the old man is dead. And we're happy to leave him dead, right? He never brought us anything except death, slavery, bondage, oppression. There is no good that came out of that. And so why would we resurrect him, Paul's saying? Why would we willfully bring ourselves back into that bondage? And so that's where he's going. So we've switched over in chapter six, right? We started talking, we said now we're kind of in the, if you're thinking about like a giant city, we're in a power plant. We're going to talk about how do we walk in the power of God and the righteousness of God. So Paul, in chapter 6, he's giving us the outline of here's the only appropriate response we have to what Jesus has done. If we do any, if anything less, trying to sort of present ourselves as slaves to sin and sort of present ourselves as slaves to righteousness is just demonstrating that you don't understand the grace of God or the peace of God. Trying to play a 50-50 game does not work. But, so he's giving us this call, this exhortation. Chapter 7 and 8 are super critical, though. You cannot stop at chapter 6. Because he's going to, well, we will tonight, but we're not going to stop at chapter 6. Because Paul's going to now go on and explain how it happens. Because if, if you walk out of here tonight thinking, oh my gosh, I got to be righteous because, you know, Paul said so, and I got to, oh man, I got I to gotta try to be righteous now. It's going to be a depressing week for you until you come back and we, we talk about Romans 7 and 8. We don't try to be righteous. We present ourselves to the Lord. Say, God, what do you want to do today? Because the answer is yes. We want to walk in obedience. We want to stand in grace. So when, you, when we stumble, and we will, every single one of us is going to sin before next Wednesday night. It's just a fact of life. Every single one of us, what do we do? Grace. There is the grace of God for that. It doesn't matter what it is. You cannot, you cannot use up the grace of God. But you can't abuse the grace of God. You can try and turn it into, hey, guess what? I can get away with whatever. No, 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 no. The grace of God is not freedom to walk in sin. It's power to not have to walk in sin. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the blessing of God, but it's at Christ's expense. It costs something for us to be able to be here tonight knowing that we're saved, knowing that we have the freedom to not walk in sin. That costs something. Jesus paid that. And if we're going to throw that in his face and flaunt that, 
then what we're demonstrating is we're not paying attention to what it costs. And so we're not, Paul isn't calling us to righteousness for its own sake, right? He's calling us to righteousness because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we can be justified by faith. Because um, chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the call to righteousness. Grace equals you have the freedom to be a slave of righteousness. So let's walk in it. God, we thank you for your word. We are just so excited to be get to going through, to be get to be going through the book of Romans. And we pray that you would just impact our hearts with the truths that are here. We want to be changed by them. We do not want to uh, walk away the same as we were. God, we thank you for the gift of your grace. We can't, we can't even fathom how deep it is, how strong it is. But God, we want to walk in it. We want to stand in it. We want to experience your peace. We are so thankful that we can be justified by faith. And so we pray that we would have that faith, that we would believe in the gift that you're offering us, that we would accept it and receive it, that our old man would die if it hasn't already. I pray that you would fill us with your power, help us to stand in grace. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, that we pray. Amen.